You're such a good, good father. And uh, Father, we're about to see this morning that you are so dangerously good. And that though we, we cannot live with you, we cannot live without you, and you have done something to make it possible for us to live with you. So I just bring this message before you. Would you give us ears to hear, our hearts to, to understand, to accept, to believe? Would you give me clarity of thought and speech? Would your spirit work in power and conviction, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ from this passage? In whose name we ask and pray. Amen. A dangerously good God from 2 Samuel 5.17 to 6.23. In C.S. Lewis's most famous and well-known Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children, Lucy, Peter, Susan, and Edmund, they enter Narnia through a wardrobe in their uncle's bedroom. Edmund, like Judas, has already given his allegiance to the witch, and he sneaks off to join ranks with her. The other three children go to the home of the beavers, a weary but hospitable pair. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children that they will take them to see the king Aslan. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan in a posh English voice. Sorry, English. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mr. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. For many today, God, if he exists, just, is just a tame, old, benign deity. A pastor was doing a funeral for a lady who was a Christian, but none of her children or grandchildren attending the funeral were Christians. The pastor exclaimed, preached boldly the gospel, firmly but gently. After the funeral service, a lady came up to the pastor and said, Oh, thank you, pastor. That was so nice. 
It really was nice. And did you know, Pastor, I am religious too. The family even asked me to pray for the weather when we go golfing. You see, for some, God is just a cosmic lackey, an errand boy we can call on to make our golf games pleasant and to help us escape reality for a while, and then he is just summarily dismissed. You see, for many, God just putters around in his heavenly garden. He smiles benignly and waves now and then and spends most of his time in the heavenly room doing puzzles. It's as though God was some sort of half-daft uncle, hair sprouting from his ears, a bit runny at the eyes, winking at our pranks and little indiscretions. This picture of God was very different back in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, churches depicted God as some sort of despotic God, howling in rage, wielding Punishment with both ransacking destruction and surgical precision. That was a God that we were afraid of. That was a God that needed to be appeased. I recently read in the cult of Mary in Catholicism that the cult of Mary arose because of that medieval portrait that was depicted. It was a picture of God so dark and punishing. The wrathful father always on the edge of a tantrum. So the common folk needed a sweet, understanding mother to turn to, to hide behind, to intervene for them. Mary turned the wrathful father into a sentimental, motherly safeguard. But the passage before us this morning is going to paint a picture of God that is a little different, but is going to paint a picture of God who is dangerously good. So let's go to our first heading. God is dangerous to his enemies. You've got your Bible. Have a look. And in chapter 5 and verse 17, we read that the Philistines, because they hear that David is now king over Israel, they go up in full force against him. And in verse 18, we're told that the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephrehim which in Hebrew is literally the valley of the giants. Does that ring a bell? You might remember David who takes on the giant Goliath back in 1 Samuel. You see, yet again, God's king will go up against the forces of evil. If you read the passage carefully in those first few verses, you'll notice, though, that the Philistines were defeated not once, but twice as they came up again in verse 22, and they spread out in the valley of the giants. But 2 Samuel 5.20 is the key to both victories, because this sits in the middle of the victory on the top and the victory on the bottom, and this is sandwiched in between. And have a look at it, because this is how it literally reads from the Hebrew. It says, so David went to Baal Perizim, which means Lord of Outbreakings. And there he said to them, he said, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against the enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perizim, Lord of the Outbreakings. Four times in this verse, the words breaking or outbreaking is used. It is God who has broken out against the enemy of God's people. 
And David likens it to waters breaking out. The image is one of flash flooding. It's dams bursting. Something of what we've seen even on the news last night going on in Scotland. Everything is carried away in a wave of destruction because the Philistines have discovered that God, the true and living God of Israel, is dangerous. God is dangerous to his enemies. God is dangerous to those who would rebel against him. God is dangerous to those who think that he doesn't exist. God is dangerous to those who think that God is some old, benign, fuddy, duddy in a heavenly old age home. The Philistines discovered that God is dangerous. But God's people, Israel, are about to discover the same thing. God is dangerous to his enemies, but he's also dangerous, number two, even to his own people. David now decides, have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. David now decides that it's time for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought back to Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 1, David again brought together all the able men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up to Bachla in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The ark of the covenant, that is, that's the place. It's symbolic of where the, where the presence of God is enthroned between the cherubim, the two angels. And notice that the ark is called by the name, the name of the Lord God Almighty. In other words, the ark represents God in his character and glory. The ark represents who God is in his holiness. And the ark has actually been in a place called Bachla for around 20 years. We go down to verse 5, where we are now told that all of Israel was celebrating as the ark is coming back. They're celebrating before the Lord with Kinstonets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And if anybody can tell me what castanets and timbrels and sistrums are, please, not now, uh, Caroline, you can tell me after, afterwards. I couldn't figure it out. As the ark is now brought from Bachla, David's dance is a kinetic outburst of sheer joy. There is a liberation of soul from the one he has now surrendered to the one who has made him king over Israel. But suddenly, things go wrong, don't they, in verse 6. In fact, they go tragically wrong. There's an accident. An ox stumbles, a cart lurches. The ark of the covenant totters. It threatens to tumble to the ground. Uzzah the priest is right there and his instincts are razor sharp and lightning quick. He is ready for just such a thing. He's vigilant. He's diligent. His hands are ready. They are hovering in anticipation. When the moment comes, Uzzah is prepared. He is about to save the day. And verse 6, as the oxen stumbles, he reaches out his hand. He touches the ark and God smotes him dead. Why, we ask in shock and horror. 
Wasn't Uzzah just simply trying to keep the ark from tumbling to the ground? Wasn't that such a good thing? Wouldn't you and I have done exactly the same thing in exactly the same circumstances? But God kills him for it. Why? There are two things that happen here. One, Uzzah touched the ark, which no one was allowed to touch. Not even the high priest could touch the ark. No one ever, ever could touch the ark of God. But the second thing that's going on here, I wonder if you've picked it up in the reading, and you'll see it as I put up verse 3 and verse 13 for you. And I want you to shout out as you spot the difference. It should be obvious. 2 Samuel 6 verse 3 they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abimnadad, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abimnadad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. All right? Have a look at verse 13. This is now second time round. When the ark comes a second time, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. You see it? What is it? What's the difference? Mm. What's the problem? The ark was on a was on a cart. It was a pagan transport. They were meant to carry it. And if you look a little further into go back into Exodus chapter 24, verse 14, helps us a little further. When, when, when God was giving instructions on how to transport the Ark of the Covenant, God said to the Israelites through Moses, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to do what? To carry it. You see it? You see, what's happened here is God's people have underestimated God's holiness. They've started to treat God as some sort of tame being, and so they ignored His instructions about the Ark rather having a, a fairly blasé attitude to careful obedience, and they were judged. They discovered that God is dangerous, even to his own people. I guess it shouldn't be surprising in verse 8 that David was a little angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah which means outbreak against Uzzah. You see it again? Same language again, don't you? Outbreak, outbreak king. In this case, God has broken out against his people. God has broken out against his enemies, and he's broken out against his people. But the central question, therefore, comes here in verse 9. Understandable that David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? That's the question. That's the key to the passage. Let me put it to you this way. The question could be shaped, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Who can stand in the presence of this holy God and not be consumed? How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can the presence of the Holy God ever come 
to us? How can God ever live with us? How can you ever live in the presence of the Lord and not be consumed? God is so holy that sin is burnt up in His presence. And we're soaked in sin, aren't we? We're like a rag doll soaked in the flammable wick, liquid of sin. And God is a raging fire. If God comes to us, we would be consumed by the holy fire of His presence. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. You see, we can't live with God because He is dangerous to sinners. But we can't live without God because as you are about to see, God is so good and He is the source of all blessings. God is dangerous to His enemies. God is dangerous even to His people. But number three, God is Round two of the trip. Verse 10 and 11. We're getting to the round trip two. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Understandable. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, I want you to see something. Can you see that the ark presence that brought death with Uzzah is the same ark presence that is now what? Bringing? Bringing blessing to whom? To Obed Edom, who is a what? He's a Gittite, who is a, a Gentile. Somehow, listen carefully, somehow, it is possible to live in the presence of the Lord and not be consumed and be blessed. So look at verse 12. Now, three months has gone by. Here we go. Round two. Now David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of obed uh, Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Yeah, David is somewhat what? He's somewhat jealous because he is now seeking the blessing of God for Israel that's being enjoyed by a Gentile. And I'm not going to go here, but for you deep theologians that want to dig, check this out. Romans 11, 11. Paul says of the Jews, did they just stumble as to, as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel. Mm, I'll leave that one with you. One of the great tensions of the Bible is this. You can't live with God, and you can't live without Him. He is the holy God who might break out against us because of our sin. But He is so, so good because in His very presence are the blessings and blessings eternal. 
So remember the question, who can stand in the presence of God and not be consumed? Let's go down to verse 17. Second time now they've brought, second time, they now bring, they, David now brings the ark of the Lord and he sets it in its place. This is near the end, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David now sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Why do you think they succeeded the second time around? Why was there no death of anybody second time around? Well, you might sit here and go, well, well, obviously now they carried the ark, right? They carried the ark instead of putting it on an ox cart, which was a pagan transport system. That must have been because they were obedient, right? Hmm. That's what I thought. That's what I thought as well. But if you look at the text carefully, there are, there are two incredible things that actually take place that make the presence of the Lord possible. Let's back up into verse 13 and you'll see. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, there it is, instead of going on the ox, when they'd taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. He was wearing a linen ephod, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now go down to verse 17 again. They brought the ark of the Lord, set in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. You see it? Why did this trip now succeed? What does David do after they've taken six steps? What does he do? He, he sacrifices. When we get to the end of the trip and he puts the, 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 the ark in the tent that he's pitched, what does David do? He makes more sacrifices. Third thing to see, what is David wearing in verse 14? He's wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. Here's the question. What makes the difference? Here is a priestly king offering a sacrifice for the people. You put it a slightly different way. Something dies en route both times. The first time, Uzzah dies. The second time, animals die in the place of people. The first trip, it starts with celebration. It ends in fear. The second starts with sacrificial death, and it ends with the what? With the blessing of God's presence. Have a look at it in verse 18 and 19. So after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And then all the people went to their homes. Do you see the picture? 
God has come to His people, and they're eating a meal in His presence, and they are not what? They are not consumed, because a priestly king has made sacrifice for their sin. In every culture, eating a meal with someone is a sign of friendship and community. Eating a meal in the presence of God and not being consumed is not just the climax of the story, but is the climax of the whole Bible. So there is the question again. How is it possible for the presence of God to come to us? How can you and I eat and drink in the presence of God and not be consumed and blessed by His presence forever? How? Through the sacrifices of a priestly king. And Jesus Christ is the priestly king to whom David points. But the sacrifice that Jesus makes is not the blood of bulls and goats, but the sacrifice of himself once for all for the people of God. You see, it was God, the Father, that broke out against His Son at the cross so that we could come into His presence. Here's how Hebrews 7, 27 puts it. And like the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. And then look at how Hebrews 10 puts it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter where? The most holy place. What's that? We have confidence to enter the, the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw close to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It is the priestly sacrifice of the blood of Christ that brings us to live forever in the presence of of a dangerously good God and never be consumed. So how do you respond to a dangerously good God? One, you trust in Jesus as your priestly king. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2 puts it like this. Since then we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This grace in which we now stand is the very presence of God. You see, if you put your faith in Jesus, you need never fear God breaking out against you. Trusting in Jesus grants you an eternal peace with God now and access into that grace 
in his presence forever and ever and ever. People who trust in Jesus live in the presence of God now and are not consumed, and they will live in the presence of God face to face one day for all eternity. And let me show you how it all turns out symbolically pictured in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. Look at this. Therefore, they, God's people, are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. How do you respond to a dangerously good God? That through Christ the priestly king has made it possible for us to go into the presence of God and not be consumed? You trust in Jesus. You trust your priestly king. Number two, how else do you respond? You celebrate before the Lord. You celebrate. We've done a little bit of that this morning, haven't we? Let's just go back to verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Brothers and sisters, come on and celebrate. Come on and celebrate. Because there is now no condemnation for those who live in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, our priestly king. Remember I said you, David's, David's dance was something of a kinetic outburst of sheer joy. There was a liberation of his soul. There was a surrendering of his life to the one who had brought him into God's presence. Some people, um, some people read this and, and sort of want to claim that David's uninhibited dancing is a mandate for dancing in the church today. I want to say that's to miss the point slightly, especially in view of the fact that David was probably dancing half naked, as we see later in the passage. There is to be a joy. There is to be an outburst of kinetic exhilaration, joy, rejoicing. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. Why? Why? Because you're always in the presence of God now not consumed, and you will be in his presence face to face one day. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 4. 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is, the Lord is close. The Lord is near. The Lord is living in you by his Spirit, you are in the presence of God in a way that you can barely fathom. Let there be something of this kinetic, spirit-filled rejoicing of the people of God as we understand what our priestly king has done for us. And I want to say to you, 
I don't know about the dancing bit. I don't, us bappos don't dance so well. My wife told me the other day, I'm an awful dancer, but that's okay. I, I, I take that. But I want to tell you, there will be a party. There will be a party in heaven. My brothers and sisters, you will see me dance like you've never, ever seen anybody dance before. Even my wife. But then again, we won't be married in heaven. All right, let's move on. What do you do? How do you respond to a dangerously good God? Through what he's done through his priestly king for us. You trust in Jesus, in your priestly king. You celebrate before the Lord. And thirdly and finally, do not despise him. Did you pick up that last few verses? They were quite sobering, weren't they? So David turns home to bless his household. Michelle, who is actually one of his wives, daughter of Saul, came to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around, there it is, half naked in full, of the, in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Now, it's in verse 16, but, but let me just flick you across to the same account. To the same account in 1 Chronicles 15, 29. This is what it says of Michelle. As the ark, same story. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating... She did what? She despised him in her heart. I encourage you this morning not to be one who would despise the priestly king who's laid down his life in order to bring you into the presence of God. Hebrews 12.25 puts it like this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Michelle's barrenness in 2 Samuel 6 is a picture of judgment. Those who despise the one who by his blood brings us into the presence of God will discover that God is only ever dangerous to them. To refuse him, to despise him, is to experience a God who will break out against you in wrath without mercy. Do not despise Christ today. Trust him. Trust his priestly work at the cross. And celebrate the goodness of the gift of his presence, both now and one day, fully by sight. The same David in this passage wrote these words at the end of Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, talking to the Lord. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's where we're going. 
That's what's coming. Here's a great quote from A.W. Tozer as I bring to a close. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, we take refuge from God in God. Wow. Only a God we fear and yet do not need to be afraid of can make our slow hearts burn. Wow. Let me just read it again. We take refuge from God in God. Only a God we fear and yet do not need to be afraid of can make our slow hearts burn for Him. And may your heart burn for Him this morning. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Horsey isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's have the gathering team up. With hearts burning, 